yeah yeah hi steve thanks for joining hi. us um and uh oops We've seemed to. Do sort of your influence on um, your influence on other people's careers and and moving into into sports medicine uh, later on in the chat. But we had a few questions sent through uh, that people wanted to ask you, so we just thought we may as well start with those, if that's okay. Um, just people wanting to get to know a bit more about you and about your journey. And then as we go along, we'll see where the chat takes us. We'll see if any questions come in and kind of go from there, if that sounds okay. That's fine with me. Super, sure. super. Craig, are you still with us? Yeah, I am. Sorry, I've just... I'd actually, oh, you're um, Great. Good. I'd actually forgot to plug my laptop in and just about to lose everything. <laughs> Perfect. This is going really well tonight. It feels really good. I'm really, I'm really relaxed about this episode. So, um, Steve, for those that don't know you, and, and mo- like I say, most people do, um, but a, a well, short, the a quick. People that do. Uh, well, pretty much anyone, <laughs> anyone that do podiatrists. Absolutely, yeah. Anyone that works in within sports medicine in podiatry has one of your one of your books on their shelves, if not more. Um, and I lose track of how many books you've written. Now, I've, I've got three of them on my shelf, three of your books. How many have you written now? Well, I have three textbooks and three paperback books, so six yes. in all. I don't know if you have any t- of the textbooks. I've got all three texts. I don't think I've got any of the, the paperback. And actually, one question that came in, we may as well, as we're talking about your books, go there now, is... Um, I mean, it might be a bit like when you have children and you're not supposed to have a favourite. And, you know, none of us have favourite children, of course. But of your three books, do you have a favourite? Is there one of those books that you um, are particularly proud of over the others? Not really. I, I mean, the first book I wrote was the beginning of podiatric sports medicine. And, that, and it, was, it was from Futura, a small publisher, who also published some other books the podiatrists were writing, like, Josh Gerber's bunion surgery book, and uh, and so I wrote that book while I was still on the f- teaching full time at the at the California College of Podiatric Medicine and, and started my practice. And uh, after I wrote the textbook, uh, Podiatric Sports Medicine, then I wrote a paperback because I, I was consulting for Runners World magazine and they wanted me to do a column on you know, leg and knee and foot and ankle injuries every month. And George Sheehan, uh, who is a friend of mine and a cardiologist and a runner, wrote a, a series on general medical stuff and inspiration and all that. So the guys from Runner's World came over and said, you know, we need you to write a paperback book. So I wrote the book called, and they titled it The Running Foot Doctor. And that was the first book that went out to the public. And that kind of gave podiatry a big boom because all of the runners and athletes started reading that and then they realized that podiatrists were the most um, effective treaters for any running type injuries or any type of sports that had any running in it and since all sports have foot contact and running in it uh, with the exception of swimming which then has problems when you push off on the wall in the swimming pool so there's still some stuff in there Uh, basically that kind of got podiatry into sports medicine 
then we formed the uh, American Academy of Podiatric Sports Medicine around the same time, and then realized we had a certified podiatrist for sports medicine. And since very few podiatrists were doing sports medicine, we started the certification with about the four or five guys that started the academy, and then that got things rolling. But the book that probably was more comprehensive was the second book I wrote, um, the second textbook. And then the third textbook was a revision of the second textbook, and that was more comprehensive. It was more integrative medicine, utilizing all specialties, nutrition, pediatric sports medicine, psychology. So, I mean, psych psych sports medicine, psychology, and, uh, and uh, homeopathy in it, and herbs and nutrition, naturopathy in it. Just about everybody that you could see when you're an athlete. So I had chapters yeah. from I had a chapter from Lyle McKelly from uh, Harvard on pediatric sports medicine orthopod there, and I just got all of my friends and everybody I met to help with the third textbook. So and can we just clarify? With all of them. <laughs> yeah, good. Did, you should did, be. You should be. Go ahead. The paperback we... books had a lot of influence on the public, whereas the textbooks had a lot of influence on the. Uh, on the podiatry profession, but I've met countless podiatrists, young guys and stuff, who told me that the reason they become podiatrists because they read one of my paperbacks. Yeah, Steve, well, your, your, your paperback for the running foot doctor, that actually came out during my final year at high school. Um, and I think there are a lot of people in the same boat as me that that influenced our career choices. Um, hey, look, I just want to reflect on something you said briefly about George Sheehan. I mean, I have several of George books as well. And in some of my workshops, I do a very brief history of, of how the profession got to where it was through sports medicine. And I, I usually ask people, who knows who George Sheehan is? And sadly, no one knows. They used to know. But what I wanted to ask you was, how much of an influence do you think George Sheehan had on getting the, the podiatry profession where it is now? I think George had a bit of impact on it because George was a, a cardiologist yeah. and he and I used to run together and do marathons together oh. and go to different seminars and present together. And, and um, he would write that the most um, effective treater for runners problems was the podiatrist and that the podiatrists were the sports medicine specialists for all lower extremity problems. And that at that time, the, general practitioners and the orthopedists and other people that were involved in treating athletes didn't really know what they were doing because they didn't know anything about the biomechanics of the lower extremity in sports. So George had a big impact on it. And George was the kind of guy that would, didn't care what his colleagues were saying, the other MDs and, or, or other people. And he just he would come out with his opinion and he'd say, see a podiatrist, even though other physicians were getting upset. There was another guy too, Alan, I can't remember his last name now, but it'll come up to me. Alan uh, was a, uh, I think he was an internist, but he also was into running and he was the editor of the, of the position in sports medicine. And he took, had George and I come on board and write articles and stuff like that for the physician in sports medicine. And that got a lot of, uh, that went to all, everybody that uh, was sent to general practitioners and everybody. It was funded by the advertisers. So anybody that got it didn't have to pay for it. And that had a lot of influence too. Um, and I even had general practitioners tell me they read my article on what to do with ingrown toenails and in athletes. 
and I basically gave, did a paper on how to do a partial matricectomy or how to do an avulsion. And they said that that really changed their practice because they never knew what to do about it. And I said, well, you're supposed to send them to podiatrists. And they said, yeah, but if we don't have any around and we're the only physician in a small town of uh, 20,000 people or 15,000 people and there's no one else here, what are we going to do? And I said, yeah, do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I don't think. Answer your question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just, yeah, I, I mean, that's correct. So I don't, I don't think people quite realise the impact that someone like him had on getting us where we are. And I, I still, and I'm sure you'll remember this as well. I think it was his book of essays on sheen on running. There was an essay in there that runners didn't need to have a shower because the sweat was produced naturally. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was running and being or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He, I don't know where he came up with that, but uh, <laughs> he had a lot of different crazy theories. He had a theory yeah. that got us in trouble. He had a theory that we could drink beer during a marathon to replenish our uh, our glycogen <laughs> and glucose. So we ran the, the Dallas White Club, the White Rock Marathon together, George and I did. And at about the 15-mile mark, he said, uh, I'm pulling out, Steve, but this stuff isn't working for me. I'm going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept going and, and finished the White Rock uh, Marathon. That was when we, we were out, invited out by Ken Cooper. Ken Cooper was a physician and had this clinic mm. in Dallas that mm. um, all these executives and CEOs from the big corporations would go to, and he'd do these comprehensive histories and physicals on them and try to get their health into shape so they could remain being CEOs. So he had us come out there and do some work too. George and I kind of traveled together as a team for quite yeah. a while. Hmm. Oh, no, he certainly had a, a big impact. Um, are you still running, Steve? No, I'm not running much. I'm hiking more. I go for about a two-hour hike every day now. I'm seven, I'll am i be 76 next month. Mm. And for some reason, my body just won't. I, I ran too many marathons, quite frankly. I ran 52 of them. And I ran some back-to-back. You know, one week I did White Rock in Dallas. The next week I did the Hawaiian one. And I did so many that my muscles got flat. I just lost all of my, my rebound and recovery in my muscles. That'll be all that beer. I basically stuck to... Pardon me? That'll be all the beer. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, well, yeah, was, well, being an Australian, I'm sure that that's all you guys drink is beer. <laughs> you think what we have is water. Yeah. Actually, here's a, here's, a, here's a technical question, Steve. You're talking about you did too many marathons back to back. What do you think of the new Hocker Onay Onay, the, the Supermax cushion shoes? Because what a lot of the ultra marathon guys are saying that their recovery from the long runs is a lot better. So maybe if you had shoes like that, you'd still be running marathons. Yeah. I have about three or four different shoes I'm using now for hiking and running and stuff. I'm trying doing some running, run, walk, run, walk hmm. and getting back into it. And uh, there's one called an ultra, which is uh, yeah. like an old root shoe, which hmm. shoes produced in Canada long ago, which has a negative heel. Yeah. And that's and and I have some friends of mine that are podiatrists and runners that are competitive, uh, short middle distance runners, and they say they only run with that. Mm. I've tried it and it didn't seem to work well for me. Then I have one of these. I have some of the other models that are supposed to be really high shock absorbing, and they work pretty well. Um, two years ago, when I was at the our sports medicine academy meeting, the American Academy of Podiatric Sports Medicine. Uh, Nike gave me a pair of their um, air running shoes, and I could run with those. 
and those were just terrific. They absorbed the shock very well, but uh, after about six months, they were shot. I need a new pair, and I'm so cheap, I usually wait for people to give them to me. <laughs> yeah. So, Steve, you, you, are you still... Are you still working or are you retired? Because you're obviously still going to the, the AAPSM meetings. Um, you're still, still keeping to, your toe in the water. I still have to get my continuing medical education, and I have to do it in workers' compensation, podiatry, and chiropractic, because I'm a QME, uh, which is a qualified medical examiner for the state of California. So what I do is um, I'm in a big multidisciplinary medical group, and I have about six offices I go to. I have my original office that I sold to another podiatrist, Jenny Yu, who's doing great, that's here in the Bay Area in San Leandro. And I do QMEs or I evaluate injured workers there on my own. Then I go to five offices that ExamWorks uh, has. And we have about, I don't know, 40 physicians in our group. And I'm the main podiatrist. And uh, so I'll go to an office in Sacramento or San Jose or someplace like that, Modesto. I was in Modesto yesterday and I'll evaluate up to seven to eight people. And then I go and I take digital photos of them and especially of their feet, their posture and everything like that, everything I need so I can study them. And then I um, read all the records and do the reports. And that's what I've been doing now. I quit doing surgery a couple of years ago and I quit treating patients a couple of years ago and sold my practice to someone younger I didn't want my patients to have to go out and try to find a doctor. I wanted to find somebody I could kind of initiate into what I was doing. And uh, in fact, she calls me or emails me for answers to questions all the time now, and I try to help her out. So basically, Perfect. I'm not treating, I'm not doing surgery, I'm just doing consultations. I'm just doing workers' comp, medical legal, basically. But certainly not, not, not fully retired. I'm not fully retired, much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> but I can take I can take like we just took three weeks off I can take a month off I can take two months off I just have to adjust my schedule perfect oh I just got a message from Kevin but he's just oh Kevin Kirby's just saying hi good to see you good to see you on here oh, he's done it oh, yeah, he's, he's done an episode like he, he's done an episode with us and uh yeah he just said hello um so do you ever plan on retiring, Stephen? Do you ever plan on never, you know, removing yourself from this at all? Because I look, I look at your your history. I see how much work you've done, how many years you've done it for, how many books you've written. You've got at least three different degrees that I that I could find out when I did some research on you. Do people like you, clearly driven and and hungry for knowledge, do they ever retire? Do they ever just play golf and sit on the veranda, or are you going to keep doing this forever? I, I retired. I uh, I quit playing golf. I was played for ten years, and uh, I got worse and worse instead of better and better. <laughs> I just said screw it and gave it up. I was a member of a country club, and also two of the people in our foursome died, and that kind of I thought, well, screw it. I'm getting out of this. <laughs> and buddies of mine that I've hiked with and skied with. I was a competitive skier. I still am a, a relatively good skier. I raced for years and stuff like that. They, when they retire, that something happens to them medically and they get in trouble. That's been my experience. One of my good friends who was a, a, a general surgeon, did a lot of thoracic surgery, retired. And the day he retired, he was driving down the road 
and he started having heart palpitations and problems. He called his cardiologist and told him to pull over and don't drive. And he ended up having to have a pacemaker with a defibrillator put in. <laughs> and I've had that happen with multiple guys that are physicians. And I've just said, no, I'll never retire. I'll always do something. <laughs> Perfect. Um, can we talk a bit about sports podiatry uh, and how it how it's changed through the ages because you were there right at its you know right at its uh, not just its birth it's it's you know uh, its conception um and and how it's changed over the years because um, i know you've worked with nba teams and, and all sorts and i'm guessing back in the very very early days there wouldn't have been a podiatrist attached to every nba team and every uh, nfl team whereas you know uh, my understanding in america now is that that's that's very much the case and i know that here in the UK and over in Australia with Craig, we've we've got presence, podiatry presence, almost every professional level of every sport now. But that clearly wasn't the case when you when you came on the scene and started it all. So can you just talk us through the the change and the evolution of it through your eyes and what that's been like? Oh yeah, um, initially, and Kevin, if Kevin's on the line, he'll smile when I say this. Uh, initially. When I started doing the sports medicine, um, we were pretty much so indoctrinated into roots biomechanics, Scarlatta root and weed. And uh, Tommy Scarlatta was one of my mentors and had an incredible uh, influence on me because he taught me the importance of just observing and just watching people. I I just go to I mean you know I went to the San Francisco school and I would just. Uh, go on to go downtown and just watch people walk all day. And uh, he taught me how to really observe what people were doing and then figure out how to correlate that with biomechanics and function and kinesiology. So initially, we were using rigid orthotics. And they were, um, they ended behind the metatarsal heads. We were using Roeder. And we were also using polymethylmethacrylate to put posts on them. And that turned out to be, uh, breathing that stuff turned out to be a cause of cancer. Uh, and uh, so we had to watch out for that. And the athletes would come to me with knee problems or hip problems and foot or ankle problems. And I'd make them wear those hard, rigid orthotics. And every one of them told me they just hated those damn things. But they also said that once they got used to them, it cured all their problems. And then I realized that I was being too, too doctrinaire and that uh, there has to be some leeway with uh, Scarlato and weed and root and roots biomechanics because that's a basis, but you have to be practical. And um, in, in regards to practicality, there is a guy, uh, Schuster, Dick Schuster, who just passed away. And in fact, I was talking to his son, who's a podiatrist, it was our sports medicine meeting about it a couple months ago. And Schuster used orthotics that were more, um, they weren't hard, rigid, that they were more functional. They helped with biomechanics, but they also absorbed shock, but they were tolerated well. And uh, so I realized there needed to be a compromise between the hard, rigid orthotics that everybody hated and the orthotics that were more accommodative and shock absorbing. And so I gradually became more practical and um, realized that every foot needs a different type of approach and a different type of orthotic, and that one type of orthotic for everybody is doesn't work well and you have to listen to the people and get feedback so uh, basically more and more people doing sports medicine are being more practical than I was in the beginning and 
like if you're treating an NBA basketball player, you don't put them in a hard, rigid orthotic. I mean, these guys have size 16, 17, 18 feet, 18 size feet. You make a soft, accommodative orthotic that will absorb shock, and you make one. Some people need one for every game. Some people need one a week. Some of those players need one once a month, you know. And you have to be more sports-specific and, and uh, open-minded about what you're doing with orthotics and treatment. And another thing is you have to know a whole lot about the foot gear because if you put a great orthotic in a, in a shoe that isn't a, accommodating the orthotic in the foot well, well, you basically defeated your whole purpose. So over the evolution of sports medicine, um, I think what's happened is almost all teams have realized that they need a podiatrist and the podiatrists have to listen to the athletes and really decide what is the best treatment instead of going by doctrine. That's what I've learned over the years. Perfect. Great. Actually, Steve, I was... By the way, I, was in a, oh. I think I was the first Olympic team podiatrist. Mm, you know. Yeah. Actually, Steve, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned someone's name then, um, Dick Schuster, because I was going to actually ask you about... Um, you know, we talked about George Sheehan. I mean, back then there was Dick Schuster. Two other names that come to my mind is Rob Barnes and John Pagliano, and, and you know the influence right. that, that people like that have had on where, you know where we are now. I'm well, John, think- John, John was a friend of mine, and we mm-hmm. ran together and stuff. He held the United States world rec- he held the world record for the 50 mile run. He mm-hmm. was an ultra distance runner way back when, and. Um, he and I would discuss things. Basically, everything, everything comes down to, to realizing that when a runner runs on one side of the road, they have one set of problems. And when they run on the other side of the road, these are crowned roads, they get another set of problems. And that the slant of the road creates the problems. So if you can change the slant of the foot like you change the slant of the road, you can correct the problems. And Pagliano and I came up with that basically just by observing, you know. Mm. Oh, so yeah. Jar so, 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 and Pagliano was very practical too, and uh, Harry Levac was there, and he was very practical. Yeah. And um, the Schuster, of course, was practical, and there was a big difference between the Schuster approach to biomechanics and the root weed approach to biomechanics. One was more rigid, a more rigid doctrineering approach, which was the root weed and, scar- and all of that, and that was based on the assumption that there's a neutral position in the subtater joint in everybody, and you can find that neutral position in everybody, which is kind of bullshit when you think about it. There is a general <laughs> neutral position, a generalized neutral position, and then what people need is a functional control of a generalized neutral position, and the neutral position is the position that functions best for that foot and ankle and lower extremity, not the position that you think should be the best. That's the difference between what I, when I began doing sports mm-hmm. medicine what I'm doing now, if that makes sense. So Schuster's impact was that he was treating athletes successfully using an orthotic that was totally different than what I was using. And uh, and who else was in there? There was Schuster, Robert Barnes. So Barnes yeah, Bob, Bob treated, Barnes, uh, yeah. yeah Barnes, Barnes actually started the quest for a podiatry sports medicine academy because hmm. he treated uh, Jim Ryan with a orthotic that um, – was not very substantial. It was less substantial than the orthotic that uh, Schuster was using. And it was a, a thin, floppy type of orthotic, but it had just enough accommodation and support for a miler, which was what was needed. 
because we realized Myler runs in spikes, and they may train in regular running shoes, but they 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 compete in spikes. And what uh, what he did works quite well. Ryan broke the world record, mm. so I realized that. So Barnes, we had a meeting. Scarlotta, I was teaching at the school, and Scarlotta said we're going to form a sports medicine academy. And I'd already become a runner and was already writing for sports medicine for Runner's World. And um, so Barnes flew up and a few of us got together because I was teaching biomechanics and surgery at the school and we formed the sports medicine academy. So Barnes was very influential because he was the godfather of always trying to keep the sports medicine academy going. You know, that was important. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I mean, I was lucky enough to have met all those people. Um, I think I, I first met you, Steve, in 1981 at the Academy meeting at Disneyland Hotel. Yeah, and then, right. then we took that cruise down to Prita Vallata. <laughs> right. That was, yeah. Um, uh, Kevin's just commented, actually. Kevin's online. He's watching now. Hi, Kevin. And he's just... Uh, he's just said, let me read it verbatim. Uh, whilst he was a student in 81 at uh, California College of Pediatric Medicine, the first pair of foot orthoses he ever saw with a various forefoot extension were a pair that a patient brought into the clinic and they were, had been issued by you, Stephen. That's about, that is when Kevin started using more forefoot extensions. Um, so what's key here is that you've directly influenced Kevin. Kevin directly influences entire generations, you know, my generation and, and the, the ones below me. So it's, it's like this big family tree of, 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 of you know, knowledge, isn't it? And, and all these names that you mentioned, and I admit to not knowing some of them. Uh, I feel yeah. guilty for not, it's a bit like hearing about your, your, your great grandparents and feeling like you owe them, uh, you, you owe it to them to, to read a bit more about them. I'm, get, I'm kind of getting those feelings now myself. <laughs> yeah, I was with Lowell Weil once, and uh, Lowell and I were real good friends, Lowell Weil Sr. And he's a real giant in podiatry and, and surgery, as you probably know. And he also was part of the Sportsman's Academy. And he and I were together once, I think in Chicago, and uh, I was getting ready for a run, and I pulled out my orthotics, and he looked at my orthotics and, and said, Oh my God, you have all kinds of crap on those orthotics. You have felt here, you have a piece of something there and something there, and you have a four foot extension, and you're accommodating the first metatarsal head. He said, You're not a purist at all. You just do what's practical, don't you? And I said, Of course, Lowell, that's the only way I can run. And then he realized that being a, uh, a real uh, brute purist was not practical for what we were doing. And Lowell was treating a lot of professional athletes too. But when he, when he, when he saw my orthotic, he just started laughing because he thought I would have something that would just be a pure root orthotic, you know, something like that. Or one of those overcorrected orthotics with a 15 degree four foot post, <laughs> something, of that, something as ridiculous as that. Yeah. So yeah, I did use four foot extensions and because a lot of, some of the runners are, are, don't do heel foot toe. They're on the ball of their foot the whole time. What good is it going to do to do a heel foot toe orthotic? Basketball players are a lot of times on the ball of their feet, you know? So I wrote an article once on uh, multi on, on the biomechanics of most uh, of the, the biomechanics as it relates to all the different sports. And basically um, for a lineman on a football team, they need a totally different orthotic than a running back 
or the quarterback. And it's sports-specific biomechanics. I think I wrote an article on that. And that went into how the angle of gait and the base of gait changes depending upon how fast somebody's running and what sport they're doing. And I differentiated multi-directional sports from unidirectional Sorry, I'm just getting some feedback I can't get rid of. Pardon me? Yeah, that's okay. I was just getting some feedback. I couldn't get rid of it. I've got rid of it now. So sorry to interrupt you there. Keep going. <laughs> well, I tried to differentiate multidirectional sports from unidirectional sports and edge control sports and then jumping sports and all of that and tried to come up with different ideas biomechanically and, and functionally, uh, like functional anatomy, to how to get an appropriate orthotic and appropriate approach for helping to control the lower extremity. Another thing that was just revolutionary for me is that um, when I was consulting for Brooks, they paid for all my research, and uh, they bought me a really good treadmill that I had in my office and a really good video system that I had in my office, and I had every runner and even walkers, just Rutiger patients, I did a gait analysis on the treadmill and videoed them, and I found out that with high-speed video, what you think you're seeing with your naked eye is not what's going on. And that, in fact, some runners at mid-stands, at mid-contact, pronate excessively, where when you look at them running with the naked eye, they look like they're doing pretty good. And that those little differences is what's the difference between having pain or not having pain. And when you make an appropriate orthotic for somebody, and they're in a shoe that works well when they're running, you should see really good biomechanics on the video. Mm. That made a big difference. And the, the lessons there is... Uh, observe, look with your eye, and then see if there's more to see. And sometimes just taking a picture or doing video helps you see more than you thought you were seeing. And then next time you watch somebody do anything, you'll see more because the video helped you to see more, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Steve, Stephen, I've got a question because you, we, we, we take for granted that we, we come into this profession now in an era where we just have so much technology. So we, we could, you know, we've got phones in our pockets that we can get really quite high, high quality video from if we need to. And uh, obviously when you started, technology was in a certain place. And as you sort of went through your career, technology evolved. And were you, were you quite an early adopter with technology? Um, you know, when some, you know, when, when something came out, you thought, yep, let's, let's start looking into this. Or did you sit back a bit and just sort of say, okay, let's, Let's let's no, not get was, too carried away. I initially no, I I did I did I used technology initially that hadn't been used before. Basically, I had a friend Don Chu who is a PhD in physical therapy and the trainer and physical therapist for all the Bay Area teams, the professional teams in our area. He's, he's about my age, so he's probably slowing down now. I think he may have retired. Anyways. We were at Cal State University, and he was teaching kinesiology and sports medicine to, to trainers, to certified athletic trainers. I helped teach some of his class, and we took runners, believe it or not, and we put um, Steinman pins through their legs. They wanted to have it done. In fact, it was an orthopedist that volunteered, a runner, and we hooked them up to telemetry, and we measured all the forces going through the muscles and lower extremities during running and walking and all of that. And we found out very early on that the forces going through the upper leg just below the knee were 17 times gravity, where, every, where the literature and common thought was that when you're running, you have three times more body force going through your foot. Well, the truth of the matter is that you were having 17 times your body weight going through the leg 
and that what the muscles do when the muscles are fresh is they absorb shock. Everybody thinks that muscles produce energy. Don't, that's what you think. That's what I think. But what muscles do more importantly for the athlete is they absorb energy. And when the muscles quit absorbing the energy, when you become glycogen depleted, as all of us who runners have done, all athletes become de glycogen depleted, and you go into aerobic metabolism instead of anaerobic metabolism, your muscles become flat and they're not absorbing the shock. So what absorbs the shock? The periosteum and the bone. And uh, the same thing happens to the foot. When the foot becomes fatigued, the intrinsic plantar muscles in the foot, like the um, short flexors and the abductors and all of that, uh, underneath the plantar fascia become fatigued. And, you, and I've got studies where you put the electrodes into the, plant, into the plantar muscles of the foot, pull the arch up, when they become fatigued, what happens? The foot pronates more than it's supposed to, it sags, and the plantar fascia starts being stretched out beyond what it's supposed to be to get micro-tearing and plantar fasciitis. So the muscles are extremely important in absorbing shock energy as well as, as creating, uh, as utilizing energy for movement. So I think all of that's important. So we did that research long ago. I don't know where it ever went. Then we used um, surface electrodes and telemetry to measure the forces in the muscles too. We found out that in a runner, I, I mean, Inman and even Roger Mann had done some of this. Uh, at UC Medical Center in San Francisco had done some studies on just the biomechanics of gait. And they noted that the phasic activity of muscles is different when you're walking. So the posterior tibial kicks in at this phase of the walking gait and the, and the anterior tibial kicks in at this phase of the walking gait. Well, in runners, as soon as the foot hits the ground, everything kicks in. The posterior tibial muscle fires immediately, you know, and there's muscles that fire to decelerate and muscles that fire to accelerate in the runners or in any running sport. So we learned that very early on by just doing uh, our own um, research with uh, electrodes and force plates and everything else. Uh, that was very early on. But the interesting thing about it is when I started sports medicine, there was a field called biomechanics and there were people, PhDs in, in schools that were studying biomechanics, but they hadn't seen any of the research we had done. I did research with a patient of mine that was a cameraman for a local TV station. He was a runner too. And we, we did, I still have the, the movie. We did studies with very, very high speed photography where we did step printing of it. And we showed the difference in going with a bad shoe, running, running and walking with a bad shoe, running and walking with a shoe that was, had more buildup, running and walking with an orthotic, running and walking with a posted orthotic. We did all of that. And you can see clearly on the video, the muscles firing and the, the, the correction of the foot in running. And you could really see, well, in a sturdy shoe, at that time we put a, a three degree medial post on the, on the shoe, on the Brooks shoe, because we didn't know about uh, dual durometer and all the rest of that stuff. Later that became obvious to put a higher durometer muscle in the medial aspect of the heel and a lower durometer of the lateral, even though they wear, shoes wear out too soon. We, we pulled around with that too. What I'm saying is our early research really did help me understand what was going on. And we used whatever technology was available. But what I was going to say is as soon as um, uh, Peter Cavanaugh and Barry Bates, who were the two PhDs in biomechanics, uh, Cavanaugh with Penn State and, Barry, and Bates with the University of Oregon and Eugene saw my presentations and saw the movies and the research I had done, they went, 
Okay, well, we see what's going on. Subotnik's saying controlling the foot makes a huge difference in everything else, in the back, even up into the neck, because I had videos showing changing and the function of all of that, and changing pelvic asymmetry and all of that. And they started doing the research, and they did research that was a quantum leap more sophisticated than anything I had ever done. And, um, but that got them going. And then everybody started having PhDs, biomechanic PhDs, joining all the shoe, shoe companies, uh, Adidas, um, Brooks, um, and uh, Nike, certainly. Nike with, Bucky, with Phil Knight, with Bucky, and all those people started realizing that they needed not only a podiatrist, but they needed a sports medicine um, PhD in biomechanics to help design their shoes. So that had a big impact. Then the research they did had an impact on me because they were far more sophisticated in research than I'd ever been. You probably know those names, Peter Cavanaugh. Sure, yep, no, yeah. Very well. And yeah. Barry Bates. Barry Bates did the work with Stan James. In fact, I was with Stan uh, four years ago. We had a reunion at the Sports Medicine Academy meeting up in Portland. But Stan's still practicing as, a, as an orthopedist. He works like uh, um, two half days a week or something like that. Yeah. Actually, Steve, I just want to just just ask you a question about your career. At some stage, you decided to go back to to school, and you obviously got your chiropractic degree. But what what motivated that shift in your your trajectory? <laughs> well, a couple things. I was doing uh, QMEs, qualified medical evaluations, and I was seeing people that had an injury on the job to their foot, and then I was seeing that they ended up with an. End- Antalgicate, and then an antalgicate causes pelvic asymmetry, and pelvic asymmetry causes low back pain or lateral hip pain or greater trochanteric bursitis, or, or biomechanics can cause uh, lateral maltracking of the patella, all of that stuff. But some lawyers, when I explain that in a deposition, because these lawyers de- depose you because the lawyers for the uh, insurance companies get paid by the hour. So if they do a deposition, they make more money. Whereas the lawyers for the injured worker get paid by the settlement. (laughs) So I realized that what was going on and this one lawyer said, um, do you have a degree to treat the low back? And I said, no. And he said, well, then we're going to disallow what you said because you're not an expert on the low back. Do you have a degree to treat the knee? And I said, no. And they said, well, then we're going to disallow what you said about the knee and about causation. So I said, screw that. And I went to school and got a, a chiropractic degree because it, at my age, at that time, I was about 45 and or even older. And I thought, I don't have the time to go to medical school and become an orthopedist and go through an internship and residency all over again. Because I'd already done that as a podiatrist. I, I trained at Highland Hospital in Oakland. And so I got a chiropractic degree and that allowed me to expand my workers' comp practice and uh, medical legal evaluations and to go to depositions and say whatever I want and not have anybody question me. That's one reason why. The other reason why was I was doing uh, more natural medicine because I was trying to find out how to integrate natural medicine with orthodox medicine because I realized that to my frustration, there were a lot of people I wasn't helping. And the reason why is because they, did, they didn't respond well to orthodox medicine. People from other countries don't respond well to our American orthodox medicine. They respond better to folk medicine or acupuncture or something else. So I studied all of that, but in order to have an umbrella 
to do that kind of medicine, I needed a, a wide ranging degree. And chiropractic is a very wide ranging degree. They can treat anything, they just can't prescribe um, allopathic medications. So that's one reason I did that. And I didn't get my degree till I was about 50. Oh, here comes the fire trucks, until I was about 50 years old. And I also went to homeopathy school for four years because my son had an illness. Um, he ended up having, he was just a little kid. He had otitis media and they kept giving him antibiotics as those of you parents who have kids will realize. And then they started putting tubes in the ears and then they, they, he ended up with bronchitis. Then he ended up with asthma. And I, I realized what was happening is the allopathic treatment, although treating one symptom and problem was causing other ones and it was driving the disease deeper. So I studied homeopathy and homeopathy can be effective for some things and some runners just love it, but it's very difficult to do well and it takes a whole lot of time to do well. So I used some homeopathy in my practice and herbs and things like that more superficially, but didn't go into it really deep as you need to do to, to do it right because it was just not practical financially. It took too much time, but I needed a degree to, that would allow me to do that because in podiatry, you can't treat headaches or nose or sinusitis or anything else using natural medicine. So in chiropractic, you can. So that's another reason why it was kind of a selfish reason. I explored all kinds of things in my life because uh, I wasn't satisfied with some of the results I was getting just doing what a standard orthodox medicine did. I realized that there needed to be a blend between allopathic medicine and other forms of treatment, which I still agree that there needs to be a difference. That, but the main thing is when you get older, like I am at 76, when you have diseases, you better go with the standard orthodox medicine because the other stuff doesn't work as well. Steve, can I, can we ask a question about leg length discrepancy? Um, yeah, sure. Can. Just, 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 just to get your take on it, because you're a you're a podiatrist, but you're also a chiropractor, and and, um, and often I know there's there's debates between professions about the, I guess the relevance or the importance or significance perhaps of of leg length discrepancies. And um, do you have internal dialogue with yourself? Do you what, what, what sort of value do you place on it or not place on it? I put a big guy. I, I have a. I think that's very important, and I tried to understand leg length discrepancy. And going to chiropractic school actually helped me with that, because I realized there can be a actual or anatomical leg length discrepancy, and but that more likely and more often there's a functional leg length discrepancy, and the functional leg length discrepancy is kind of easy for a podiatrist to understand. If you have posterior tubular insufficiency flat foot on one foot you're gonna lower the arch. You're gonna internally rotate the leg, you're gonna rotate the pelvis, and you can end up with pelvic asymmetry. And on the short side from the foot that's overpronated, you're gonna get a posterior inferior pelvis. When you look at the low back from behind, the side on the short side is gonna, the foot's gonna actually rotate. The pelvis is gonna rotate externally and drop down inferiorly. And then if you just take, um, an orthotic and build up that arch on the, on the small side and then observe the pelvis, you'll notice it becomes horizontal. If it doesn't become horizontal, you may have an anatomical limb leg discrepancy, and in that case, you need a heel lift. But be careful with heel lifts because 
Some people don't do well with them. Some people's spine is already adapted to the limb length discrepancy and correcting it will cause more problems. Some people need it corrected because that'll solve their low back pain and also help with their leg and knee pain. So you have to be practical with all that. Another thing is, is that I came up with this rule of three. I don't know if it was me or someone else, but I basically said anything that goes wrong in a runner is three times more important than what goes wrong in a, in a non-runner. And what I was trying to say is a one-fourth limb-like discrepancy in an everyday person may or may not be relevant. But in a runner, it is relevant because that actually responds as about a three-quarter inch limb-like discrepancy. It's three times more important. And um, little biomechanical abnormalities, as Harry Livak would say, uh, um, podiatrists look at little things that general medicine overlooks when it comes to the foot and ankle and biomechanics. And the little changes biomechanically, like a four-degree four-foot varus with a hypermobile first ray, and um, make a big difference in an athlete. It's, and the, that four degree, four foot varus with the hypermobile first ray is like a 12 degree, four foot varus functionally because of, because of the um, accommodation to it during the sport and running. So that, that's what I came up with. So basically, once again, you have to observe what does the person look like when they're just standing with the way their feet normally are in just relaxed stance. Watch them walk up and down the hall, have them stand, relax, and then pull up their shirt, look at the back, palpate the back, put your fingers on each side of the posterior superior like crest and see what's going on. Then have them internally rotate foot and hold the arch up and see what happens to the low back. If the, whole, if the pelvis becomes horizontal across, everything's balanced, you know they have a functional limb length discrepancy. If, if they still have the limb leg discrepancy, then use the heel lifts and it'll make a big difference. I've had people that I couldn't believe I've helped that I did just by adding a quarter inch heel lift or, or by add, or, and then when you go to people with true anatomical shortening, sometimes you have to add, uh, you have to build up the bottom of the shoe. You need a good cobbler to do that. You probably have noticed that um, you can get up to a quarter of an inch heel lift within a shoe. You can get away with that. Some people you can do a three-eighths inch heel lift, especially if they're using a high top tennis shoe or something. Over that, practicality, and the practicality is you just can't do that inside of a shoe. And then you need to go to the outside of the shoe. Then when you go to the outside of the shoe, you've got problems because if you have a one-inch limb length discrepancy, which is anatomical, you can put the whole buildup on the heel. Then you have to go, as you go forward to the end of the toes, you have to reduce it by a, a half at each level so that the heel would be an inch, the midfoot would be a half an inch, and the forefoot would be a quarter of an inch. And then they can function with that. If the buildup is too thick, you have to put grooves in the buildup in the midsole so they can flex a toe off. So all of that you have to be very practical with. So the main thing for podiatrists is, is determine if it's a true limb-like discrepancy or a functional limb-like discrepancy. As far as doing the uh, x-rays to see if there's a limb like discrepancy or not, I don't do that because quite frankly, I don't care. All I'm interested in is how the pelvis functions, how the low back functions in relationship to the biomechanical control of the foot. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, it sure does, Steve. Um, well, we're just, we're just about up to an hour. So I've got one last question for you, Steve. Have you, have you got any advice for, say, any, any new graduate just wanting to start out in sports medicine? Yeah, you have to be an athlete. 
<laughs> That's it. Okay. You have to find a sport you're going to be, you want to be involved with. I don't care if it's bowling. You know, there are excellent sports medicine podiatrists that are bowlers. I don't care if it's golf. Biomechanics and golf and, and orthotics and stuff can make a big difference with stance, even though you're still going to screw up your back being a golfer. I did that. And um, you have to be involved and you have to be willing to volunteer your time. You have to just find out where the local running club is, where the local ski club is, where the local basketball club is. You pick a sport and get interested in it and show up and volunteer your services, volunteer going to the races and helping athletes at the finish line. Volunteer doing whatever it does. Volunteer for the Special Olympics. We have the podiatric sports medicine is the primary treater at the, at the Special Olympics. And the guy involved there is wonderful. He's absolutely wonderful. I forgot his name, but he's a, he's a saint for doing what he's doing. Wonderful person, wonderful podiatrist. But you need to get involved. You need to volunteer. And when you're treating a world-class athlete training for the Olympics, you can't charge them for crying out loud. They can't afford anything. They don't have any money. So you treat them for nothing. When you're treating an NBA basketball player, you're treating them through workers' compensation because any injury they have is work-related. <laughs> and you're going to have to learn that system to get paid because the team's not going to pay you. They're going to wait for their workers' comp insurance carrier to pay you. Yeah, stuff like that. So the main thing is, is, is be passionate about being a podiatrist Realize it's a phenomenal profession without any limitations, frankly, and that there are those podiatrists that want to specialize in wound care and diabetic care. God bless them. I hate that. I just hate <laughs> treating those people because they always get worse. And treating athletes, they always get better. And that's much more rewarding to me than treating people that are gonna, that preventing. I mean, you, you do a great service, but I just didn't like that kind of medicine. So stay with sports medicine, be passionate about it, read everything you can. Read my textbooks. I actually wrote them so that you guys could learn something about it. You may not agree with everything in them, but get some ideas of what's going on. Get all, I mean, the first one was basic, but it still had everything in it, believe it or not. I don't think it costs like, what, $18, $10, I don't know. Read my paperbacks because they're very helpful too, and they explain things in simpler terms. And that's what the athletes are going to understand, what's in those books. And just get involved and volunteer your time, and eventually you'll be well-known. All the podiatrists I know who are doing well and are team podiatrists started off by being generous with their time and their advice. Yeah. Great. Look, th thanks so much, Steve. It's, we, it's, it's, we've used up the hour. Um, it was great to catch up with you a few weeks back. Um, and thanks so much for agreeing to come and do this. We've got a lot of positive feedback coming while we've been doing this about how good it is. So, so thanks so much for your time. And um, Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Okay, my pleasure. I hope it helped. And yeah.